So we plug along, we hit a new year, we gain some momentum, we make plans, and then the temps plummet, the car goes, and we hunker down, nothing moves, and the January blues set in. Guess what? Spring is coming. It's only 65 days away. Just a, few mo- a couple months, and then we can throw off the old winter coat. We can get out and enjoy some nice warm weather. It's going to be awesome. Are you feeling it? But in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, we cancel Sunday school. We postpone Alpha. And uh, many of us are uh, wondering if this is as good as it gets. Well, just because things aren't going the way that we had planned or the way that we want them in the moment doesn't mean that there aren't better days ahead. In fact, you've heard me say the best is yet to come. Say that with me. The best is yet to come. Don't forget this. It is true. Even when the temperatures are way below zero, the best is yet to come. Did you know That as a follower of Jesus, you have significance beyond anything that you can imagine. You have a glorious future ahead. So, in his letter, uh, the first letter that Peter writes, uh, chapter 2, he says, Be the church. It starts off his letter, Therefore. Uh, Neil T. Anderson, he writes, he says, Understanding who you are in Christ is essential for your success at living a victorious life. Did you know that being the church is at the center of God's plan for salvation? And it's all wrapped up in you being the church. So we jump into First uh, Peter here, chapter 2, verse 1. He starts off, uh, therefore. So we ask, well, therefore what? What therefore? He's, he says that since you uh, are this new creation in Christ, since Christ has made you new, since you have this new birth and this new life, now you have this living hope, you belong to the body of Christ, and since all of that, since you're not a building, you're not an institution, uh, you are a spiritual reality that is beyond bricks and chairs, and therefore, in all of that, Peter says, act like the church. He says, be the church, act like the church. And so this requires some house cleaning. So we we begin the passage in chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every every kind. He says, get rid of it. This, This is stuff that is part of the old life. It's not consistent with who you are as the church. So what do we get rid of? Well, community-destroying devices. So when the community is under pressure, which often it is and in this season seems to be, then oftentimes the church, uh, we, we start to bicker with one another. We start to, to uh, we have a tendency to have divisions, which makes the community more vulnerable. So Peter's really clear that we need to deal with this stuff before we move on. So he talks about getting rid of it. So like this heavy winter coat, I'm already warm. He says, uh, take it off. That's the idea of getting rid. It says, just uh, throw it off, get rid of it. So he starts out his uh, first with with the vices or these, these things that are corruptions or evils. He says, the first one is malice. So malice is a general term for ill will or depravity. 
it's a force that destroys a fellowship. So it's an idea that destroys our relationships with one another. It kind of sounds like grumbling and bitterness. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul describes it like this. He says, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So right there, Paul gives us the alternative to this kind of malice that, that uh, Peter's talking about. He says it is sincerity and truth. Malice is a heart issue, really. Uh, Jesus said that out of the heart comes all kinds of evil. Peter's saying, we have a new heart, so this doesn't have place with us. So he, he talks about malice, and then the second vice is deceit. It, it, it's close to uh, sincerity as well, and the idea of hypocrisy. So let's, let's deal with deceit. These are ulterior motives that you know, aren't good. Jesus dealt with deceit. Certainly at the Passover in Jerusalem, the scripture says in Mark 14, the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming. That sounds like deceit, doesn't it? Scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So this kind of behavior uh, is not to be part of the Christian community because it damages the truth of God. It damages our witness and who we are. So what is deceit? Peter Davis, he writes, anything less than speaking in full and honest truth from the heart. Full and honest truth from the heart. Now, wouldn't that be refreshing? Or should I say, isn't that refreshing when we can have a conversation with one another that we know is full of truth, is completely honest, it's from the heart. You know, we can deal with it if we know it's from the heart. Best interest. Well, that's deceit. Insincerity is a little different than uh, but it's like deception. It deals with this inconsistency. So if we think of uh, insincerity as inconsistency between what we say and what we do, between how we act and, and how we present ourselves, you know, if there's any inconsistency there, that is insincerity. Uh, it, it's kind of the idea that uh, the word hypocrisy comes from. Jesus called that out most with the religious leaders. He, he said it's the opposite of truthfulness and honesty that the gospel demands. So this sincerity. Peter says, uh, take it off, throw it away. It's a part of the old life. It's not who you are anymore. So the fourth vice then out of five is uh, one that corrupts the community of the church and that is envy. And it shows up in all these lists of destructive attitudes, wherever you look in the New Testament. So what does it look like? I'm just going to pick a verse in Mark 15 to describe it. For Jesus perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered them up. They didn't want Jesus messing with their authority, with their positions. It uh, deals with wanting what someone else has. Or, you know, it could be popularity, influence, a role. Or it could be losing something that I have, something that is threatened. That idea of envy. So what does it look like to be absent of envy in this uh, new life? What does it look like to be an envyless church in how we function? Envyless. Well, I think Philippians chapter 2 describes it really well. The apostle writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So putting the other first. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. A sacrificial mindset. Now, as we talk about these vices and Peter saying get rid of them, this is what I love about Bethlehem Church that you live into this idea of what Peter is talking about, that you love with sincerity and truthfulness with each other and demonstrate it over and over. Now, these are things that uh, we're to throw off, and I think continually to throw off and be refreshed and renewed, but that is who you are. So one more advice uh, that comes out of envy is slander. And slander is a little different than deceit, Deceit is saying one thing to someone face-to-face, but really meaning something else. Uh, you know, slander is practice when the other person's not present. So something that's said behind someone's back. It's a nasty practice, and it destroys the church. And all kinds of communities, really, that, that, uh, you know, where, where they might experience this slander are, are destroyed, whether it's a workplace or a team or a sports team. So what are we called to? Um, Well, this idea of slander is criticizing the person to others in their absence. So do you do that? If you do, throw it off. Just don't do it. So too often, I think it it deals with motives. We try to guess people's motives. What if, as a born-again Jesus follower with this new way of life, what if we simply practice truth and love with our church community? What if we simply... Speak the truth and ask and have conversation. You know, if we deal with the truth, it's so much easier, isn't it? And, and I think sometimes it's tough, but if we know it's done out of sincerity and love, then it actually brings us together as the community of Christ. So in conversion, we are to throw all this off and to turn to what is good. We do it with the whole church in mind, what is best for our life together as the community. So now, we went, went through these vices, throw these off. Now we discover something unexpected in Peter's letter. He doesn't give us a list of virtues now to follow. Instead, he does something which is far bigger. And I think this is kind of the big idea of the whole letter. Uh, we find it in verse 2 of chapter 2. Peter calls us to dependence on God. A simple dependence on God. So we don't get to this new life on our own, and we won't live it out. On our own. We need God to do that. Peter writes, verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So we get some similar language here in Nicodemus' uh, conversation that uh, he has with uh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus talks about the need to be born again, to have this new spiritual birth. And uh, he picks up this theme and reminds us then that newborns need milk to survive. They need milk. And a spiritually newborn believer also needs what? Milk. That's right. He says, crave it. Last week we talked about cravings and... uh, it's not something we necessarily create. A craving is something that we, we kind of have or that we can feed. A baby, uh, you know, it, it just knows it's hungry, right? And, and then it lets you know that it's hungry, and then what do you do? You feed it, right? 
eat, 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 because that's the idea. Well, you know, we desire this uh, new spiritual life, but we recognize that it needs to be fed actively. We need to feed that new spiritual baby that is in each one of us. So feed the baby. Say that with me. Feed the baby. All right. And again, what do we feed it? Milk. So you get the picture, right? The food that nourishes the baby is, is not meat and potatoes. It's not Skittles and gummy worms. It's milk. So babies drink it and they grow. And the same with new Christians, but not just new Christians. The whole idea of this idea of spiritual nourishment and milk, it's, it's a general. It, it has the idea that this is something that we all continually need to grow. This is the spiritual nourishment that, that is required in this life. It's a powerful image in the early church. The apostolic tradition says that Hippolytus offered newly baptized a cup of milk with honey before they even shared in bread and communion. Not so sure I'd like that, but you know that, that was the idea, the imagery, this whole process that's taking place. So what specifically is the milk? If we go back to chapter 1, verse 22, 23 and 25, we get this context. What is the milk? He writes, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, enduring word of God. He says, The word of the Lord endures forever. So this idea of the spiritual milk, that spiritual nourishment, is the teachings of Jesus that we continually need to feed ourselves with in order for that spiritual life to grow. Like newborn babies, he says, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So what does that mean to grow up? Are we saved at conversion or do we have to grow into it? Well, Peter's image here is the idea of spiritual birth, you know, this baby, the goal, the goal isn't birth. Uh, that's the beginning of salvation. So you must be born again. You must have this spiritual beginning by faith in Jesus Christ. But the ultimate goal is, is, uh, is growing up into that salvation is the day that Jesus returns and we live into all that God has promised in the new heaven and the new earth. Peter says, grow up so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we're continuing with this theme in Psalm 34, 8 in mind. Pastor Greg used it this morning as our call to worship. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We get tastes, I think, of that salvation, uh, the sacrament of his body and blood, certainly Holy Communion's in mind here, but it's even deeper than that. It, it, it's the taste of what it means to be in this life together in this relationship with God. It is tasting and seeing of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his favor in our lives. So we think again, as we think about tasting, think about your favorite food. Mm. Maybe you're home right now, sitting on the couch, you haven't had breakfast, it's getting, you know, near 11, your stomach's starting to rumble, and maybe you're thinking about your favorite food. So as you think about that, uh, what do you want to do? You know, if you're like me, you want to uh, turn up the volume if you're sitting on the couch, run into the kitchen, start making that food, and then come back and sit down and, and eat it while, we're, while I'm talking. So if you do, that is desire. You want more of what you love. And I think that's what Peter's talking about here in this spiritual sense. He says, desire more of that spiritual food that tastes so good. 
And, and then keep nourishing uh, yourself with that. Keep growing up into your salvation. In other words, keep feeding the baby. So as we grow up, we, start, uh, we started with this list of five vices, and uh, we broke those down in the community in the church. Peter said, throw those off like the old cult. Quote, and now we, uh, he begins to talk about this new birth and new identity and dependence on God. And that's the ultimate outcome we're shooting for. So Peter, in uh, chapter 2, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Scripture says we are built together into being the church. So Jesus is um, no, I'm just going to jump ahead uh, here, uh, back there. I, so some of you know that I, I like to play Minecraft. I've always wanted to use a Minecraft illustration, and I think actually I have an opportunity to do that right here uh, in the church today. So uh, with Minecraft, uh, I just want an idea of anybody who knows what I'm talking about. How many of you have played Minecraft? If, all right, a few of you have. If you're online, go ahead and write that in the comment. Yes, I know what you're talking about. It's sort of a digital version of Legos. Anybody played Legos? You know what Legos are? All right, so now we're kind of getting the picture, getting the idea. So uh, in the video game of Minecraft, you build with blocks. So you can go ahead and throw that up. But you, you can't place a block anywhere in the air. It has to be set on the ground. So if you're going to build a castle or something like that, you've got to start with the, the one block, and then you can build, you know, you're building around that. So you keep adding blocks till you get this complete structure. So here's a picture of a complete structure. Now, I didn't do that, but uh, <clears throat> you get the idea. So that first block, if you go back to that first picture, that first block, that is like the cornerstone. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's that, it's that first one that is set in place. So that cornerstone is Jesus. He is this living stone, this living hope. He's not a memorial built up you know, to, a, to a dead deity. He's actually this living Christ who is present with us and, and can, and can uh, build us into this living structure. He says, uh, you know, the living spiritual house. So this allegory all relates back to the temple worship of Israel. But this time, it's not a physical temple. It is a spiritual priesthood, a spiritual temple. And the followers are to be gathered together as this new people. So as we look at these images, we recognize that in this spiritual house that God is building, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation, and everything else is built around him. In other words, we are being built around Christ into this new spiritual temple. So just to be sure uh, that we know what he's talking about, Peter takes time to describe this uh, a little better, and he uses this imagery out of Isaiah. So if we think back in the Old Testament, this, is, this was Israel's uh, call in their future. He writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So in, Israel understood this was the messianic message here. But now Peter makes this connection to the new church. He says, But this spiritual house 
is a living house of believers being set apart at the end times, and the believers are this new temple. Now, this is really profound. If we recognize or understand what the temple was, the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt. It was the place where God's glory resided, and it was the place where the priesthood offered sacrifices to God. And now Peter is saying, this is who you are. You are this new temple. He writes, now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So the stone has consequences for everybody. So Israel was this chosen by God to declare his praises to the world. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of that worship. Uh, the priesthood ministered there. They offered sacrifices. It all pointed to what was ahead, what was coming. And now Jesus has come, the, the center point of all of this. And he describes this new spiritual uh, temple with Jesus as the spiritual cornerstone. And he is in everyone's path. So you can't go around this stone. You can't pass by it. You have to encounter it. And that encounter has two possible outcomes. He's either a precious stone to those who believe and trust him and build their lives upon him, or he's a stumbling block to those who reject the message of the gospel, who reject Jesus, and it leads to their fall. So what does this mean for the church in Peter's time? Well, it meant that those who were out are now in, and those who were in are now out. So Jesus is this dividing line, and uh, those who accept become God's chosen people. So Peter is saying a very bold statement here. It didn't sit well with the Jews at Peter, uh, uh, of Peter's time, and it means everything to the struggling church. So now, when you understand our significance, it makes all the difference in how we live. So who are we? Well, if we think back, again, this is all tied together. God chose Abraham, promised to bless him, multiply his descendants, bless all nations through him. They would be God's people in the world, and they would receive God's mercy and God's favor. They were chosen people. Say chosen people. So we understand Abraham, Israelites, chosen people. They received all the benefits of God's favor. A couple of weeks ago, we learned, uh, you know, that uh, we are heirs to God's promises. We recognize that if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer, nobody can. So the Lord spoke to Moses about Israel in uh, Exodus 19, said, Now if, they, if you obey me and fully keep my commands, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Say kingdom. And a holy nation. Say holy. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And then in Isaiah, again, God speaks to the prophets saying, The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my chosen. Say chosen. The people I form for myself that they may proclaim my praise. So now these very same words that used to describe Israel are now describing, Peter's using to describe this new church of believers. He says this, but you are a chosen people. Say chosen. 
You are a priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession. Say special. That's right. You are chosen. Now, for all of you on this side of the church, look over here to that side. And, and tell all these folks over here, tell them, you are chosen. Ready? You are chosen. Now, all you over here, turn this way to this side and look at these guys over here and tell them, look at them in the eye and say, you are chosen. All right, everybody in the back of the church back here today or online, go ahead and shout out, you are chosen. You are chosen. <laughs> all right. <laughs> way to go. So together, by faith in Jesus, we are the church. We are special, chosen people of God. And that happens because of who Christ is. So why are we these things? In order to fulfill the role of God's people. Peter writes that you may proclaim, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we are gathered here today on this frigid morning online together with us and here in person uh, to offer those praises to God as God's chosen special possession. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light this morning to by the good news of the gospel. And we have heard it, and we have believed it, and we are born again into the kingdom of God as his dearly loved children. That is who we are. That is our significance. That is our identity as the church today. And that is something worth getting excited about. It's something worth celebrating on this frozen morning. We are the frozen chosen. Not really, but you know, you, you get the idea. So all those Old broken ways of living and relating to each other. Peter says, just throw that off. Throw that away. That is not who you are anymore. Now you are a new creation. And you live by telling the truth, sincerely sacrificing for one another. That's who we are. So we are chosen. We are holy. We are God's special possession. We have him... Uh, we serve him wholeheartedly because we belong to him and we have been bought with the precious blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. God says, by faith, if you believe in Jesus, you are chosen. If you confess his name, you are a child of God. If you have been born again, you are part of this royal priesthood. If you have received his mercy, you are his special possession. So everyone sitting on this side of the church, once more, if you have responded to God's call to trust Jesus, then you are called out of darkness. If that is your hope, then stand up, because you are chosen. Actually, stand up. You are chosen. There we go. And on this side over here, if, you are, if, you are, uh, if you've accepted Jesus as a living stone and are being built together to be his house, you are called into his marvelous light. If that's your hope, then go ahead and stand up. Stand up. There you go. You are chosen. And if you're online with us or in the back there, you're already standing up. Praise God. Uh, if you're online with us today, uh, remember that you are called into his marvelous light. Go ahead and stand up off your couch today because you have been accepted by Christ. We together are being built into a spiritual house and we are to offer the sacrifice of his praise today. So we are standing up, we are chosen, and we are called to this truth. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have encountered the living cornerstone. His name is Jesus. He is either a precious stone or a stumbling block. 
And we are called to choose him as the cornerstone of our lives. You are chosen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful life. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us to be your spiritual house, your chosen people, to proclaim, Lord, your goodness and your praise. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who, who, whose desire is this, but they have not yet encountered Jesus, or this is the moment of encounter, and you say, what do I do? Let me encourage you to choose Jesus, to trust him, to believe, and to become his precious possession. And to do that, we simply pray, Lord Jesus, I believe. Forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry. Thank you for dying for me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might proclaim your praises. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.